0: you would, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1 once again this morning. We're going to continue our study of Ephesians, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 14 this morning in a sermon that I've entitled, The Believer's Inheritance. We're going to consider the believer's inheritance, and I hope you will be encouraged and blessed uh, by the fact that you do have an inheritance that is laid up and reserved for you in heaven this morning. Uh, We come this morning to the final verses in Paul's opening prologue. You might remember that this first 11 verses, or 14 verses rather, is really an extended prayer of praise to God and a list of the believer's blessings. Uh, Salvation can be expressed in a number of different ways. We could think of salvation as a past event, as a present event, or also as something that is still future that we look forward to as well. For example, scripture sometimes describes salvation as a past event. We're going to see that in Ephesians chapter 2, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. There's a kind of finality to what Christ accomplished on the cross and has credited to us. Yet, in another sense, we could describe salvation as a present activity, as something that is still in process. We see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, The word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved present tense continuously that we are in the process right now of being saved however there's even a real sense in which our salvation still lies in the future hebrews chapter 9:28 says that christ will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him are you eagerly waiting for christ this morning I hope that you are. We all are supposed to be. We're supposed to be longing for, yearning for, praying for the return of the bridegroom. And the Bible says that if we are yearning and longing for the return of Christ, then when he comes back, he will save us. So how can that be true? How can it be said that we are saved in the past, we are saved in the present, and saved in the future? Well, let me see by way of analogy if I can give you an example that might help make this clear. Suppose that you are one of the passengers on the Titanic. And thankfully, you're one of the 700 who is rescued and survives that terrible disaster. Suppose you're floating along in a lifeboat, waiting to be taken back to shore. At that very moment, you have already been saved by escaping the flames of the sinking ship. At the same time, you are currently floating in this tiny vessel... That is your only hope of final survival. And simultaneously, you're also looking forward to that moment when you will finally safely arrive back on solid ground and embrace your loved ones. That, in a sense, will be the finality of your salvation and escape from great danger. A person can be saved in the past, in the present, and in the future. And the same is true for us as believers today. We're going to focus in on that future aspect Of our salvation this morning of how we long for some kind of future finality of our redemption and the word that paul is going to use in this passage is the word inheritance there's an inheritance that you and i enjoy and by its very nature inheritance is speaking of something which is in the future that we long for we we desire and we anticipate when we can receive the full inheritance that has been set aside for us Let me read for us Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 11 this morning, and then we'll study this together. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Praise the Lord. You'll notice here that the word inheritance is used a couple of times. It's used in verse 11, and it's used down in verse 14, and it's one of the key words of this passage of scripture. But what is the inheritance? Interestingly, here in Ephesians 1, Paul doesn't really explain what that inheritance is. And that's not going to be the focus of our message this morning. But if I could summarize what the inheritance is that we're talking about and we're looking forward to, it's eternal life. And if I could be even more specific, it's the fact that God is going to raise our bodies from the dead, recreating us in the same glory and perfection of Christ, and then allowing us to participate in his glorious kingdom. God is going to give you eternal life. He's going to raise you from the dead, and he's going to give you a seat at his glorious kingdom and allow you to participate with Christ when he rules over this world. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's your inheritance, that this world is not your home. And death is not the end. In fact, in many ways, death is just the beginning of what you've waited your whole life for and what you've trusted and you've you've waited in Christ for. That is that one day you will rise again and spend eternity with Him and reign and rule with Him. We notice in this passage three elements of our inheritance. First of all, we're going to see that it is decreed by God. Then secondly, we'll notice that it's obtained by faith And thirdly, we will see toward the end of our passage that it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's decreed by God, it's obtained by faith, and it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. So first of all, let's consider how this inheritance of eternal life and being co-heirs with Christ of his kingdom, this is decreed by God himself. It says in verse 11, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of of him having been predestined and we've seen this word before haven't we we saw this same activity back when we were thinking about our adoption in verse 5 that you and i were predestined for adoption to himself as sons just as our adoption was predestined so our inheritance is also predestined it has been decided ahead of time according to the purpose of god's will We also saw in verse 4 and 5 that God chose us even before the foundation of the world, not because of anything that we had done, not because of anything that we would do, but rather simply to the praise of His glorious grace. Because of God's grace and His love, He chose to set His affection upon you and to make you one of His children. And this was all predestined to take place We notice that Paul goes on to give three words to describe God's predetermined plan down in verses 11 and 12. Three different words. He uses the word purpose. And then later on he says counsel. And then he says will. So God has a purpose. God has a counsel. God has a will. And all of these things are describing his decree, his eternal decree that we would receive this unthinkably wonderful inheritance. First of all, he says it's according to the purpose of God. The Greek word is prothesis. It's a plan or a setting forth. Over in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, it speaks of God's purpose of election. Did you know that nothing in God's economy happens by chance? Nothing at all happens by accidents. Everything has a purpose and certainly our inheritance happens according to the purpose and the plan of God. It also says here that it is according to the counsel of God's will. The the Greek word counsel is boulé. It is a definite, well-thought-out plan. Over in Acts chapter 4, the believers lifted their voices together in the early church praising God that in spite of the fact that Christ had been crucified at the hands of unjust men, Herod Pilate, the Jews, the Gentiles. Listen to how the believers actually gave praise and glory because of the plan and the counsel of God. They said to him, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth, you have done whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's a, a big God theology. That's a God that is powerful enough to create this universe and to sustain this universe and even use every single thing that happens for some greater purpose and glory. And in the same way, our inheritance is part of God's sovereign plan. Nothing can thwart it. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He said, God is so far sovereign that he has a right, if he likes, to save anyone in this chapel or to crush all who are here. He has a right to take us all to heaven if he pleases or to destroy us. He has a right to do just as he pleases with us. We are as much in his hands as prisoners in the hands of Her Majesty the Queen when they are condemned for a capital offense against the law of the land. Yes, as much as clay in the hands of a potter. That should sound familiar, right? Because that's the very example that Paul gives in Romans chapter nine. But Spurgeon goes on. He says, this is what God asserted when he said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Spurgeon says, this doctrine stirs up your carnal pride, does it not? Men want to be somebody. Somebody. They do not like to lie down before God and have it preached to them that God can do just as he wills with them. Ah, you may hate this doctrine, but it is what the Scripture tells us. Surely it is self-evident that God may do as he will with his own. And somewhere else, Spurgeon said, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Where does Scripture teach this? I think the easier question is, where doesn't it teach us? Because it's all over the place. As you read the Bible, you see the sovereignty and the power and the majesty of God leap off the pages of Scripture. If He was powerful enough to make and to sustain this universe, if He was powerful enough to send His Son to become like us and die and rise again for us, then we can trust and believe He is sovereign enough to carry us from salvation, from eternity past with predestination and foreknowledge, to election, to justification, all the way to eternity eternity future with our glorification God is sovereign over salvation and here in Ephesians 1 we see the sovereignty of God in the predestination and the election and the inheritance that was predestined according to the purpose of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will that word will the third word here that describes the power and the decree of God It's the most common of the three words. God's will is speaking of a wish that someone has, a desire that someone has. It can sometimes speak of human will, human desire. And when that desire is legitimate, it is pleasing to God. When that desire is illegitimate, it is displeasing to God, and it is wrong. Human will can sometimes be wrong. But with God, His will is perfect, and it will be accomplished. Paul said back in verse 1 that he was called to be an apostle by the will of God. And though for a season Paul had rejected the gospel, and as Jesus says, he had kicked against the goads, that as God was poking him and probing him and pushing him toward Christ, that Paul was resisting that message for a season of time. But in the fullness of time, God spoke to Paul there on the road to Damascus. According to the purpose of his will, a light shone down from heaven, and Paul's life was changed on that day. Because when God had chosen that he was going to use Paul, there was nothing, including Paul himself, that was going to stop that from happening. How much does God work out in your life according to the counsel of his will? How much? 10%? 50%? Oh, it's 100%, right? He works out 100% of every detail in your life. Look at it again. Inheritance comes from the uh, predestination of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You say, well, what about my health? I mean, I feel pretty healthy, but... I've got a doctor's appointment coming back, or, or I've got a, a test result that I'm waiting for. I, I've got something in my, my family, my bloodline, my genetics. God says He works all things together according to the counsel of His will. You say, Well, what about my, my finances? I mean, things are tight right now, and it, it's difficult, and I'm not sure. I live paycheck to paycheck, and I, I don't know what's going to happen in my future. God says He works all things together according to the counsel. Of his will. And he says elsewhere that he will provide for our needs according to his glorious riches. We can trust him. You say, what about the election next month and, and the polling results and the possibilities of what happens in the future? And God says, I work all things together according to the counsel of my will. So we can trust God. Again, Spurgeon says the sovereignty of God is an attribute like no other that can give comfort to his children. And if God is sovereign over creation and he's sovereign over salvation, do you not think he is sovereign over the minutia of your life? That he cares for you and he loves you and he's doing what is best and wise in God's eyes. God is sovereign. He is good. And he has an inheritance for you. That... Sovereign, divine inheritance is described by Peter over in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we have an inheritance that is, listen, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. It's in the very greatest place of all being held for you until the fullness of time. The the inheritance of God is more sure than the rising of the sun tomorrow. The inheritance of God for you is more secure than... All the gold in Fort Knox, God has it reserved, and he's going to give it to you in the perfect time. Because why? It's according to his divine decree. But we see another element of our inheritance in this passage, and that is that this inheritance is obtained by faith. Look with me down at verse 12. Paul says that the inheritance has been given according to God's plan so that We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then he immediately goes on to say, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice with me that the same apostle who speaks so highly of the sovereignty of God also speaks of the necessity of faith in Christ. So he talks about divine sovereignty, but he also talks about what? Human responsibility. We see both of those things held in perfect balance and tension. Yes, God has elected us. Yes, God has predestined us. Yes, God has adopted us. But at the same time, it is by faith that we receive the gift of the Gospel. Verse 13, When you heard the word of truth and believed in Him, then these truths became a reality in your life. See, faith is the means of our salvation. God is the agent, but faith is the means. Faith is the instrument that God uses to bring us into salvation. And in these two verses, Paul refers to two different categories of believers. In verse 12, including himself, lumping himself in this first category, he says, we were the first to hope in Christ. Who's he talking about there in that verse? And and I think more than likely, Paul is referring to the Jewish people. He's talking about the Jews who were the first ones to receive the message of the gospel, to pray and to hope for and anticipate the coming of Christ, and then the first to hear the message of the gospel when Christ arrived. I mean, after all, isn't that what it says over in Romans chapter 1? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. So salvation comes, first of all, to the Jews, and then to the Greeks. And we see this also in the Great Commission, where Jesus says that you're going to go, and you're going to make disciples, and you're going to start where? In Jerusalem. And then you're going to go where? To Judea. And then you're going to expand to Samaria. That was a shock. They weren't expecting the Samaritans to hear this message of the gospel. And then he says, it doesn't stop there, but it goes to the very ends of the earth. So it begins with the Jews. The Jews are the first ones to hear the message of the gospel. And it's not until we get later on in the book of Acts that we see how the Gentiles are also able to become co-heirs with Christ and grafted in to the promises of the covenant that God had made with the chosen people of Israel. So he describes himself in verse 12 as those who were first to hope in Christ, to the praise of God's glory. And then in verse 13, he adds, you also, now he turns his attention to the Ephesians, to the readers of this letter. And he says, you too, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The gospel came first to the Jews, Later, that gospel was expanded to the Gentiles. But how is that inheritance received? In both cases, whether it was a Jew or whether it was a Gentile, the way that a person would receive the inheritance of salvation and the seal of the Holy Spirit was not because of their physical ancestry. It was not because of their wealth. It wasn't because of their righteous deeds, but rather it was what? Faith. They received it by faith. It's everyone who believes in the message of the gospel that can be saved and forgiven. Again, Romans 1 the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Is that not a wonderful promise? Whoever would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ can have the free gift of eternal life. What a wonderful promise! doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're a slave or a free person. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. Doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter the external distinctions because there is one way that all of us are saved and receive this inheritance and it's by faith and it's equally available to all people. R.C. Sproul explains that there's different layers and dynamics to faith we often just think of faith in kind of this general term of like well you just you need to believe in jesus you need to trust in jesus but but he hopefully unpacks for us that there's actually different layers to faith let me read for you what Sproul says he says that faith could be further distinguished as knowledge agreement and trust he says first is knowledge or acquaintance with the content of the gospel now can you be saved without that absolutely not You've got to first know and have an acquaintance with the content of the gospel. He says, That is to say, we must first know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a personal act directed towards propositional truth that speaks to us concerning a personal Savior. Then secondly, he says, It is an agreement or a recognition that the gospel is true. See, it's one thing to hear the message of the gospel and be acquainted with the claims of the gospel, but it's another thing to agree with the fact that that message is true. So he says, not only must I know the truth, but secondly, I must agree that this is the truth, and there is a kind of assent and consent in my heart. This is a persuasion that it is true. But then he goes on. He says there's a third kind of faith All of these that are essential for us to be saved. Not only do we need to be acquainted with the message of the gospel and even agree with the claims of the gospel, but thirdly, we must trust in the message of the gospel. He said, thirdly, faith is trust, the essential step of committing yourself to God. So it must go beyond the mind and beyond the emotions. It must go all the way to affect the will, the very center of our heart and our being when there is a decisive decision and a choice that is made whereby I commit my life and surrender my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I place my life in his saving hands, and I trust him and him alone to save me from my sins and to justify me before the Father in heaven. And my question for you this morning is, do you have faith in Christ? I'm not simply asking Are you familiar with the gospel? Do you understand the claims of the gospel? I'm not even asking simply, do you agree with the claims of the gospel? But do you personally have faith in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted fully in him that it's only in Christ alone that on the day of your death and the day of judgment that he will welcome you into his kingdom because you have trusted in Jesus and found forgiveness of your sins? Oh, friends, enter through the narrow gate. Look to Jesus Christ just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. Even so, the Son of Man who was lifted up. And it was only those who looked at that serpent that would be healed from their venomous disease. And in the same way, it's only those who look to Christ and believe in Christ that they can be saved and forgiven and have the gift of eternal life. Trust Lean in, depend upon, completely surrender to Christ today so that you can have that gift of eternal life. Paul did that. The Ephesians did that. And the Bible says that when they heard the message, they knew it was the word of truth, the good news of salvation, and they believed in that message. And because they believed in it, it says there's a wonderful promise that happens. For all who believe, they receive the gift of Of the Holy Spirit until the fullness of their salvation is accomplished. When you've trusted in Christ, a wonderful thing immediately takes place. You receive the Holy Spirit as a gift. And this is our third point. The third feature of this inheritance is not only that it's decreed by God. Not only the fact here that we see how it is determined according to God's foreknowledge and His predestination, and not even simply that it's just obtained by faith, but also God gives us something to hold us over until we receive the full gift. That is, it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. What is a seal? A seal is a, is a sign of ownership and authenticity, I've noticed that there's a lot of products out there, a lot of electronic products that come from other countries, and essentially they're they're cheap imitations of the real thing. And so they warn you, if you're buying anything off of some third-party application or website, make sure that you check very carefully that you're buying the real thing and not something that is fake or artificial. It needs that seal of authenticity, that proof that it really comes from the, the reliable, the original manufacturer. Well, a seal was a sign of ownership. and It was a sign of authenticity. A letter, for example, when it was written out and it was rolled up and sent by mail to someone else to receive, oftentimes that scroll would be rolled up and then sealed with a drop of hot wax and they would press it with a seal so that it would be very obvious that that stamp represented the person who had sent it and you would know who it came from that it had not been opened or tampered with in any way. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem. He said, "'Stay here until I send my Rescuer, the one who is promised by the Father.'" And 10 days later, on the day we now call Pentecost, the disciples were gathered together in one place in Jerusalem And it says that the sound of a mighty rushing wind and there was something like little flames of fire coming down and resting on the heads of the disciples and they began to speak in foreign languages fluently that they had never spoken before. They were given the supernatural gift of tongues to speak in other languages to show that the Holy Spirit had come upon them in mighty power. And Peter preaches that wonderful sermon of Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved from 120 to 3,000 in one day because the Holy Spirit shows up in power. And that Spirit has been with us to the present day. He is in this room right now. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he is in your heart right now. You may or may not emotionally, physically feel different sometimes when the Spirit is there, but can you accept by faith what the Scriptures clearly teach, that the Spirit is alive and inside of you because you are a new creation and God has come to dwell with His people and for the Spirit of Christ to live inside for a season of time until we are fully glorified and receive our full inheritance. Oh, how much God loves us and how much He has already given us. Through the Holy Spirit, we have new birth, regeneration, and new life. Through the Holy Spirit, we have daily comfort and strength as we go through these difficult battles. Through the Holy Spirit, we receive different gifts. Some of you are gifted with serving. Some of you are gifted with giving. Some of you are gifted with mercy, exhortation, administration, teaching you're all gifted in a variety of ways and those gifts are intended to build up one another in the body of christ all of those gifts come from the holy Spirit. we have the miraculous bond of unity that binds us closely together we have the illumination of the word of god the ability to understand scripture as he shines his divine light upon it. We have constant assurance that we are God's children that have been adopted in love so that we can cry out to our Father, Abba, Father. And all of this is available through the gift of the Holy Spirit who is a seal and a sign of our redemption. And yet God says there is even more yet to come. The best is yet to come. In verse 14, it says that this Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of the inheritance to the praise of his glory this guarantee is speaking of not just a pledge but of a down payment it's a down payment it's a partial first installment of the full inheritance that is going to be ours in christ what what a gift what a blessing So, our inheritance is sealed by this Holy Spirit, and it is certain that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I like to sometimes listen to the the Dave Ramsey radio program or watch some of the YouTube videos that they post there. And oftentimes, people will call in to Dave Ramsey and ask for advice because they've gotten themselves over their head in debt. But one person called with a different problem they were actually expecting to receive a large inheritance of about $2 million and they said it was probably gonna be sometime in the next five to 10 years. They had an elderly family member. The family member had already said that they were the sole recipients of the will and they were just planning ahead, what are we gonna do and how are we gonna handle this with our children? Now, their children were already grown and they explained all this to Dave as they were asking for his advice. And he says, well, well, here's what you should do. He said, this is what we did with our family because he also has a large estate. He went from bankruptcy to great success. He says, we've, sit, we've sat our adult children down and we told them, you are about to receive a very large inheritance, and we want you to realize how serious of a stewardship this is, because you are going to be accountable before God with what you do with that inheritance. You can imagine how those children were sitting on the edge of their seats with anticipation, I'm going to receive what? This is going to be mine and and so they knew that they needed to conduct themselves well so that they would be faithful stewards and take good care of what was about to be given to them but if that is true with monetary value and financial inheritance how much true more it should be for those of us who are receiving an eternal spiritual inheritance listen to these scriptures of what your inheritance is. As I sit you down for a moment and you consider the fact that God has something very special in store for you. Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God of heaven. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus speaks of this same day when the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Friends, that is our inheritance and it's of far greater value and it will last far longer than all the money that this world can afford. This kingdom is decreed by God, it is obtained by faith, and it is sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you've trusted in Christ, that kingdom, that inheritance, is yours. And I believe this changes everything on how we live our lives from day to day. The Bible says that he who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. And the great motivation is that in light of our eternal inheritance, that we would be faithful with the small gifts, and yet so remarkable that they are, even the small gifts that we have now, that we would be faithful with those things in our honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer as we wrap up our service this morning? Father, we are stunned as we consider this inheritance that you have laid aside for us. We understand and rejoice that Christ is the heir of God, the king of kings, the rightful ruler. We, we, we understand and we appreciate that, but to think that we are now co-heirs with Christ and that you would welcome us to the same table that you promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob centuries earlier, Lord, that you would graft us into your plan. This is more than we can possibly imagine. Lord, forgive us for how often we live lives of complaint and discontentment and fear and uncertainty about the world that we live in today. Because our reality is that there is a kingdom set aside that is undefiled and unfading. And it is reserved securely by the decree of God and sealed by the Holy Spirit that one day it will be ours. Lord, give us eyes to see Help us live lives of hope. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness. I pray that you would help us, even now, to be faithful with what you have so graciously given so that when we enter into your presence, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. Now I will entrust you with much. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this great promise. I thank you for our people. We pray for our precious flock. Lord, we thank you that this is the beginning of a new day and we pray that as a mustard seed, the kingdom would grow and although it often starts small, I pray that you would do a work in our church and in our community and in this nation and around the world that there would be more people that would surrender to Jesus Christ and recognize bowing the knee that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, the time is so short. Help us to follow after you and worship and delight in you in all things. In Christ alone we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's broadcast of Feed My Sheep a ministry of Crossview Bible Church in Yucca Valley. For more information, please visit www.crossviewyucca.org. We'd love to have you come and visit us this Sunday. We're located on Onaga Trail just a half mile west of Yucca Valley High School. God bless and have a great week.